needs to be shouted out. Let's sing 231. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Bear the news to every land. Climb the steeps and cross the waves. Exodus, somewhere around chapter 17 or so, Israel is at war with the Amalekites. Moses decides to go up on a hill, and every time he raises up the staff of God, Israel prevails in the war, in the battle. And every time he drops his arms, then the Amalekites start to win. So Aaron and Hur lift his arms up and just hold his arms up in the air so that Israel continues winning, God continues getting glorified. And I love that picture. I love that example of men who come alongside Moses and help Moses hold his hands up, help Moses keep the staff of God in the air so that it's clear that it is God who is empowering the victory that's going on on the battlefield. I just love that imagery. Because I am a very fortunate fellow in that being human as I am, I know that's a shock to a lot of you, uh, being human as I am, sometimes viruses and colds and problems fell me, and that's certainly what happened this week, and I was able to lean on Steve to come up on Wednesday night and fill in here in the pulpit, and Between Tom and between Micah and occasionally Alex, and now Steve is added to the count, I just consider myself very, very fortunate that there are men that can come alongside and 
hold up GCA's arms and just keep it going, keep it going. I have known a few churches over the years that are so dependent on their pastor that if their pastor gets sick, then the church just can't meet. No meeting this week because the pastor can't preach. And that bothers me because I don't think any one person ought to be the important focal point of a church body. Steve said to me on the phone that he was a little nervous at first, and I said, yeah, but God met you there at the pulpit, didn't he? And he did, and it was a very good message, and it was very well received, and everybody enjoyed it. I got immediate response from folks who said, Steve was good. And I had to say, you know, that's not complimentary when you sound surprised. And so I'm glad that, that there are men who come alongside and do that. So thank you, Steve. Thank you, Micah. Thank you, Tom, for always being willing to uh, stand here. Because it's kind of a, a sometimes frightening responsibility to stand in front of people and stand in front of a desk that says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. And then open the Bible, open God's word, and attempt to present it to people. It's, it's an awesome responsibility. So I am very thankful that there are men who are willing to do that. That is a very zen moment. <laughs> that was the sound of one fan clapping, is what that was. So, <laughs> All right, turn to First Peter. We are in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in chapter 4 right at verse 7 because that's where we ended last week. We did read those last verse 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, but we really didn't talk about them at any length. So we'll read through those again and then finish up chapter 4. And that's going to launch us into chapter 5 and we may very well get done with 1 Peter this week. It's almost inevitable, almost unavoidable, that the New Testament writers seem to anticipate Jesus being right back. And that's something that Peter says here, the end of all things, chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Now, you might recall, like in Matthew 24, that the disciples had come to Jesus and said, what is the sign of your coming and the signs of the end? They, they really wanted to understand the end of all things. Now, different commentators have tried to throw a little cover for Peter here and have said, well, he might be talking about the end of the Jewish system, that he might be talking about the end of the temple system, and that might be what he's referring to when he says all things. After all, best estimate when Peter is writing this epistle the Jews have been at war with Rome for about a year, and that war is going to culminate in the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the very things that Jesus had predicted in Matthew 24. So maybe he meant that, or maybe he really genuinely meant the end of the age, the reestablishment of the kingdom. The Messiah has come now, and as you know, while Jesus was here on the planet, they kept trying to make him king. They know what the prophecies say. 
They know what the Old Testament oracles say, that when Messiah comes, he's going to take up the reins of government and he's going to rule from David's throne and all the nations, the Gentile nations that had always been enemy to the Jews were now going to flow to Israel and they were once again going to be the the fabulous kingdom that they had been under David and Solomon. And so that's what they're anticipating. And then they see evidence that the Messiah is here, the real Messiah. And he's doing miracles that no other man can do. And he's speaking a knowledge of God that no other man has. And so he's clearly here now. Let's do the kingdom thing. And then, of course, he dies, which they were not expecting. So Jesus kept explaining it to them. I have to die. That's what the scripture says. The Messiah has to suffer. And then he has to rise again and go into his glory. Yes, I'm going to die. But in three days, I'll be back. He told them all that, which leads me to believe that when he resurrected, there should have been 11 men standing at the graveside saying, yes, we knew you'd be back. You kept saying it. But instead, he died alone. He resurrected alone because that was something he had to do alone. And then he presented himself to his apostles again. And after 40 days of walking and talking with them and talking about the kingdom, at the end of that 40 days, they said to him, Now are you going to establish the kingdom for Israel? They're really looking for this end stuff. That's my point. They're really looking for the eschatological end of Israel, the end of Gentile domination, the end of the Jews living under the headship of foreign nations. They're really anticipating the reestablishment of the throne of David. So probably all of that is in Peter's mind when he says, okay, the Messiah's been here. We know he's the Messiah now. It's proven doubly by the fact that he resurrected. You can't even kill him. And now he's gone off to heaven with the promise that he's going to come back. And so we know he's coming back on clouds of glory, and we know from the Old Testament prophets that he's coming back for the purpose of reestablishing the kingdom. That's what Peter's anticipating, and he says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, is the next word, so he's only mentioning all that in passing so that he can say, now knowing that is true, how should you act? Now that you know that Christ is coming back, the end of all things, now that you know that everything the prophets have predicted is coming true, now that you know that, how should you be? How should you live with one another? So the end of all things is at hand, therefore be like this. Be of sound judgment. That just means think rightly as you make judgments through this life about what's allowable and not allowable, use sound thinking, good logic. Don't be willy-nilly about the things you do in this life, neither willy nor nilly. Don't be either of those. Also, don't be silly, and I might have ventured into that. Use sound judgment and be of a sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Really interesting phrase. Notice that he is talking about definite, purposeful prayer. Not something that you might do because you kind of feel like it. Maybe today I might pray. He's talking about being constant. Paul talks about it continually in prayer. 
And so if you're going to live a life that is constantly aware of the presence of God and your need of God and your dependence on God, then you're going to need a sober spirit and right judgment. But above all of that, says verse 8, keep fervent in love for one another. Why does he have to say, stay fervent in loving one another? Because it's not natural. You're not going to do it. You're going to find something about the other people you just don't care for. There's going to be something that's going to set you off. Your ego is going to get involved and you're going to think, well, how dare they? They act like that toward me. There's always going to be problems within any body of people. But the church ought to be different. The church ought to be sacrificial. That's why he uses the word be fervent in your agape. Be fervent in your sacrificial love for one another. Do it purposefully, the same way that you are purposeful in your prayer and your recognition of God in your life and in all aspects of your life. Equally be purposeful in how you care for each other, in how you sacrifice, how you love each other. Why? Because love, agape, covers a multitude of sins. And we know that's true. Because we know it is the love of God that brought about the very thing that Tom read for us this morning. That God would choose to cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. How far is that, by the way? Infinite. Yeah, that is an infinite thing. Whenever I think about that phrase, he has cast our sins as far as the east from the west, I realize that way back in David's time, they were geographically sound. Because if he had said, as far as the north is from the south, that's actually a distance that has a finite stopping point. You can go north until you start going south again. You can go south, and then eventually you're going to go north again. But if you go east, you can keep going east forever. You can just keep going east. You can keep going west just around and around and keep going west, west, west. That's how far God has set our trespasses away from us. That's a real Savior right there. Amen. That's a God who knows how he made the globe and understands the difference between north and south and east and west. So knowing that, we know that the love of God has covered the multitude of our sins. Since we know that about us, since we know that God has done that for us and God did it because he loved us that much, how much ought we to love each other? And how many of each other's sins ought we overlook and forgive for God's sake? Because love covers a multitude of sins. I've been accused before of overlooking some of the things that, let's say, I'm just going to use an example here. I'm not saying this is absolute, okay? <laughs> My kids have done some things in their lives that I perhaps have let go. No. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and you know why? Because I love them. And so rather than punish them, I love them enough to kind of... Let that go. Okay, well, that's the same idea. 
I covered that sinfulness. I covered that rebellion. I forgave that the same way that God, in his infinite forgiveness, forgives us for the things that we do because of love, because he's inspired by his love for us. So how much should we love each other? We ought to look at each other and realize that though we are all imperfect, though we all fail, though we all make mistakes, that we ought to forgive one another and cover each other rather than making a big deal of each other's sins, rather than pointing things out. There was a visitor here a couple weeks ago who confessed to me that she had a background that she didn't really want everybody to know about. And she told Janine and I about it. And she said, but I don't want everybody to know. And I said, you know what? Everybody in this room has a past. Everybody in this room has been somewhere, done something that they would rather nobody knows about. So come join the sinners. Come join those that are dependent on the grace of God. So that's the kind of love I'm talking about. The recognition that we ourselves are sinful and have been forgiven. Therefore, we can forgive the sins that we see in our brethren and sisterin. So. <laughs> Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Why did he have to add the words without complaint? Because he needed to. Because we'll be hospitable. But it's basically true that there's no such thing as human altruism. We'll be nice. We'll be kind. We'll do good things. But we sure hope somebody saw it. We sure hope that somebody's going to give us a little bit of credit for the fact that we did that good thing. He says, be hospitable. In other words, be friendly, open your house, share your food. You know what hospitality is. Be hospitable to each other and do it without complaining. Because ultimately, I think he's getting at, ultimately, it is God who is the source of everything you have. It is God who gave you a place to live and gave you food. It is God who gave you shelter, gave you clothes. It's he who provided everything you have. How can you not share that with those who need it? So be hospitable and then don't complain about it. As each one has received a charisma is the Greek word. Special gift is the way that it's translated in the NASB. As each one has received a gift from God, employ it. Employ that gift in serving one another. Okay, that is the absolute contrast of how our egos work. Because our egos say, look at me, I've got a God-type gift. Look at me, God has imbued me with some special ability. Dig me. I need to start the university of me. Go team me. <laughs> Peter says... Each one of you has received. It's a gift. It's something that's been given to you. So it's given to you for the purpose of building up the body. It's not given to you for the purpose of building up yourself or aggrandizing yourself. As each one has received 
a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Manifold grace of God. This is something that Paul talks about writing to the Corinthians. He talks about the spiritual gifts, the charismata. And he talks about the fact that there are different gifts, there are different variety of gifts, and there's different administrations of those gifts. But it's God who's in charge of all of it. So whatever gift you have, how it is administered in your life, how you share it with other people is all under the auspices of how God has given you that gift for the good of everybody. That being the case, you should be humble about it and be a good steward. What does that mean? Recognize that it's your job to protect it, to take care of it, to provide it. So be a good steward of the manifold grace of God. All these various gifts, all these different abilities. I'll give you a couple examples. In a minute, Peter's going to say, those that speak, speak like you're speaking the oracles of God. But speaking isn't the only gift within the church. Some people have the gift of helps. Some people just can't do enough. Some people have the gift of giving. Some people have the gift of consoling other people. Some people have the gift of just making you feel good about being part of the fellowship. They have that encouraging kind of spirit. Now, those are all gifts that God has given, but they're manifold gifts. They're various different gifts, but all of them are given for the good of the whole body. And so be a good steward of it. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do it as by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified, not you, not the gift, so that God gets the glory in all these things, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom Jesus Christ belongs, the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And after having said that, he can't help but write, Amen. amen. What does the word Amen mean? means verily, verily, it shall be so. There it is. The dominion and the glory belong to Christ forever and ever. That takes us to verse 12. We are now into the new stuff. That technically means that everything up until now was introduction and technically doesn't count against my time. I'm sorry for the smell of food that is wafty in from the back. I know that's going to make you all hungry, and I know that hunger is tough competition. But I'm up to the challenge. Hey, I didn't get to talk on Wednesday night, so just back up off me, okay? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Now, commentary after commentary speculates about exactly what Peter is talking about. He seems to be referring to a particular event, but we know that he's writing to the diaspora, to the scattered Jews that are outside of Jerusalem, 
who are in the Gentile nations, but while they're in the Gentile nations, they're suffering a lot of persecution. And so he says to them, don't be surprised by this persecution. After all, he's going to get at in a moment, after all, you carry the name of Christ. Christ has been hated without a cause. Of course, you're also going to be hated without a cause, but you're suffering for the name of being a Christian, so don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. If any of us was going through a fiery ordeal right now, I think we'd be complaining about it. We'd be saying, hey, 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 I've worked hard. I have a nice house. I have a nice car. My life is good. What's all this fiery ordeal about? But notice where Peter places it. Because he sees that God is utterly, completely sovereign over all the events that happen on planet Earth, he says that the fiery ordeal is a testing of your faith, so God brought it about on purpose, which makes sense. Because, as I keep saying, keep stating, keep insisting, if God is in charge of everything, and he is, then whatever you're going through at this moment is what he intended for you to go through. Whatever that may be, sometimes he will deliver you from it. I saw Devante in the back a minute ago. I said, how's your dad? Because his dad was hospitalized with a couple of different things. And, and we all care about Lawrence. We've all been praying for Lawrence. We've all been asking about Lawrence. I said, how's your dad? And he said, oh, he's better now. And he just kind of sloughed it off. It was like, well, well, Lawrence is really sick, and he's been hospitalized, and how's he doing? And he said, ah, he's fine now. <laughs> because God is in charge. God took him through it, and then God delivered him from it. And so whatever it is you're going through, Paul writes that you have not yet suffered any temptation except that which is common to man. You're not being singled out. You're not the one that God is treating more unfairly than he treats all other people. Whatever temptation you're going through, whatever trial you're going through, that is what God has ordained for you for the specific purpose of testing your faith, taking you through the trial, delivering you from it so that your faith will be increased. It's all for your good and his glory, even though it's difficult. Because often, oftentimes, the right thing to do is also the hardest thing to do. And the right thing to do, as Peter is going to say, is to be joyous, to glorify God, even in the midst of the fiery ideal, ordeal, deal, up deal. I don't, what's the deal? In the midst of the fiery ordeal to recognize God's sovereignty is the way out, which is why Paul would say, there is no temptation taken you, but such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So God knows, and he's taking you through it, so Peter can say, don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. The Bible, New Testament Christianity, is full of paradoxes. You go up by going down. 
You get the chief seat by taking the low seat. You get by giving. You live by dying. And here Peter says, even in the midst of the fiery ordeal, to the degree that you share in the suffering of Christ, okay, that sounds like a really bad thing, because we know the way Christ suffered. And to whatever degree you share in that suffering, which is a bad, bad sounding thing, to whatever degree you share in the suffering of Christ, rejoice. That's paradoxical to me. Because to whatever degree I go through suffering, I complain. I've been sick all this week. I can't get over this stupid cough. It's making me crazy. And and I want to complain to somebody. People call me and say, how are you? I'm fine. Can't get over this cough, though. I want to complain. Fiery ordeal. And Peter says, to whatever degree you share in the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Okay, so again, we see Peter is expecting the return of Christ. The reason that I read that whole pericope from beginning to end is because it began with Christ is coming back. The end of all things is coming around. How should you be? Well, if you be like this, then when you see the revelation of his glory, you will Exult with great joy over the fact that Christ has come. And man, won't you? I mean, enough is enough. I have enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. And when Christ reveals himself, cracks the sky, the trumpet is blown, the voice of an archangel come up hither, and we rise from the earth to ever be with the Lord, that's a good day. Good day. No more suffering, no more pain. God will wipe away every tear. That's a good day. That sounds good to me. That will be ultimate rejoicing, great rejoicing. So Peter uses that reality in order to encourage us to rejoice through whatever we're going through in this life. And also along the way to take care of each other, to be hospitable, to be fervent in our love. In other words, to be Christians. To be different than the world. To be people who represent Christ. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. There's one of those paradoxes again. If you are reviled, you are blessed. Now, notice that he didn't say just, if you are reviled. There are plenty of us who can manage to be reviled just because we're us. (laughs) If you are reviled because of the name of Christ, because of your Christian stand. Now, remember, this is in the context of Peter saying, always be ready to give a defense. Always be ready to defend your Christianity to defend the hope that is within you, and to do so with gentleness. Do so with reverence. You're still representing Christ as you do it. And the more that you go out and represent Christ, the more that you go out and talk Christ up, the more that you make it obvious in your defense that you are truly, genuinely Christian, the more pushback you're going to get from this world. Can I get a witness? So if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because that's proof positive that the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests upon you. That's the blessing. So this life is obviously not the end all of it. This life is passing like a vapor. And in this life, you're going to be reviled because this planet is becoming less Christian, less godly, and more God-hating in all its ways. So if you take a stand, if you say, no, Christ is right, and certain things are just wrong according to the Bible, certain things are actually abominable according to God, Certain things just are not accepted to be named among Christians. The more you take that stand, the more people are going to revile you. Peter says, rejoice in that. Be happy for that. Because you're being blessed by the fact that they revile you because they reviled Christ. They hated Christ without a cause. They're going to hate you without a cause. Look, none of us in this room is out there just trying to make enemies. Maybe Micah. But most of us are just out there trying to make friends. We're just nice people. We're just, we're just trying to do good things. And what do we get back? We get back all kinds of, well, you're just weak. Well, you're just stupid. Well, you just need a crutch. Well, you don't know any better. Well, you're not smart. Well, you're not scientific. Well, you don't know the way the world really works. Well, you're not successful like me. You're going to get that all the time from people who don't understand the things of God and you're going to end up reviled because they just don't get it because they can't get it and so all they can do is bark at you and revile you and hate you as a result. But Peter says when that happens, you're being blessed because the spirit of glory and the spirit of God rests on you. And they see that on you. They recognize that you're different than them, and they hate it. So, Peter then drops a little caveat in verse 15 and says, Now by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer. And we would all say, yeah, right, no murder. No, we don't do that. No. If you're suffering as a murderer, then you deserve to be suffering. If you're suffering as a murderer, then you deserve to be reviled. By no means let any of you suffer as a thief. We'd agree with that. Right, thief, absolutely. We don't want a thief living next door to us. No, thief. don't be a thief. By no means let any of you suffer as an evildoer. We'd agree with that. We go, yes, that's right. No evildoer. Okay, murderers, evildoers, thieves, right out. We don't want any of that. By no means let any of you suffer as a troublesome meddler. Oops. <laughs> what does that mean? That means sometimes you just get into other people's business. Oh, is right. <laughs> that means sometimes you gossip too much. You tailbear. You carry stories. You get involved in other people's stuff. And you start meddling. So look at where Peter placed that in the same list as murderers, thieves, and evildoers. All three of those we'd agree. Yes, don't be a murderer or an evildoer. By all means, don't be a thief. And don't be a troublesome meddler. Don't get in the middle of stuff you don't belong in. 
By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler, but... If anyone suffers as a Christian, one of the few places that you actually see the word Christian in the New Testament, it only occurs a couple of times. This is one of those places. It's not even a translation. The word Christian is not a translation as much as it is a transliteration of the Greek word, Christianos. And it's just moved into the English language as Christian. In essence, it means a follower or even a diminutive or a little Christ. So you're wearing Christ in your life. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in that name, in that Christian name, let him glorify God. Okay, I've been debating with myself whether I'd even say this, but... There is a a church in Murfreesboro, rather significant church. Okay, it's a mall. There's a mall in Murfreesboro that is disguised as a church. And and they are, I've got to say, the most consistent Arminian church I've ever seen. The pastor is the only person I've ever heard pray Arminian prayers. And I was sort of so impressed by that that I was like, well, well done you. I, I... Because most Arminians preach Arminianism, but then when they pray, they pray like Calvinists. They they end up saying, well, God, please help this person interfere, save this person. Well, wait, God can't do that. What about their free will? So that church made the decision several years ago that the word Christian was too off-putting. And they want to be accepted broadly. They want the world to like them. And so they've decided not to use the word Christian anymore. They don't self-identify as Christians. The closest they will get is they occasionally use the phrase Christ follower, which they think is a little less offensive than Christian. Peter says that if you suffer as a Christian and are not ashamed of that, that that name is to the glory of God that you are a Christian, that you identify with Christ, that you've been baptized into Christ, that you live your life for the glory of Christ, that you pray through the name of Christ. Christian is what we are. Christian identifies a group of people who belong to Christ. That's the whole point. And then there are churches that feel that that might be a little too offensive, so we're going to try to back off that. And yet, Peter sees it as a name that glorifies God. For it is time. This is that end of all things thinking that Peter's got going. For it is time for judgment, a separation. It's krima in the Greek. It's a a judicial separation. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. I think what he means by that is it's time for us to start growing up. It's time for us to start living the things that we profess. It's time for God to start separating the real stuff from the fake stuff. It's time for God to judicially make separation within the house of God. And then Peter says, 
But if it begins with us first as the house of God, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I mean, if God is willing to judicially separate even within his own people, then what's it going to be like for those people who are not obedient to the gospel? Clearly, the judgment of God is going to be exceptionally difficult on them. And then he quotes what could be Proverbs 11.31. If you would, Tom, look up Proverbs 11.31. You can read that for us. But in the NASB it reads, And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? So in other words, his concept of judgment beginning at the household of God and then what's going to be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God, he's getting that idea right from the Proverbs. It's something that's already written in the text that if it's with difficulty, with hardship, that people are saved then what's going to become of the godless man and the sinner? Here, Tom's going to read it for us out of the Proverbs. If the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? So if the righteous is repaid on earth, how much more the wicked and the sinner? Peter says the same thing here. If judgment is going to start within the household of God, then what's going to be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? Yes, ma'am. This is something that you know I've been struggling with. Uh, in the same sense that the righteous will be divided, you know, take for the real, it's not so much that I argue with sinners who are against Christianity, it's Christians arguing with Christians. The idea that I'm hated, I'm hated more by, by Christians than I am hated by atheists. Is that is that still an applicable battle? Is that still, you know, is that still to be applied here, a necessary suffrage to fight even against weaker brothers, even against Christians who would hate you and revile you in the same manner that an atheist would, because your view of God is different than theirs? That's a very good question. Yes, I think so. Uh, I think the truth of the scripture always deserves a defense under all circumstances. And what God has said in revealing himself is true because it's true because it's true. So whether you are compromising the truth because an atheistic person is angry at you or whether you compromise the truth because someone professing Christ is mad at you, it's still a compromise. The end result is still the same. So I would say under all circumstances, you still stand for the truth. I was talking earlier to our friend who's come to visit today and I didn't say your name out loud, Rodney, so it wouldn't go on the internet, but now it will. Um, and he was saying that he and his wife had been Pentecostal, right, in your background, and that he was presented with the doctrines of grace the first time and rebelled against it, you know, didn't agree with it, right? And so the more that he was exposed to the Word of God, the more he saw that these things actually are in the Word of God. And then he embraced it, and then it all made sense. It all fell together for him. So would he have been right to continue resisting it when he disagreed with it? No, he did the right thing, which was, let's find out what the Word of God says. And that's where the battleground is. Whether you're dealing with an atheist or whether you're dealing with a purported Christian or even just a weaker brother, you're still dealing with somebody who is not standing toe-to-toe with what the Bible says. 
So I think the argument, rather than make it personal, has to always go back to, but what does the Bible say? Because if you say, if you profess that you're Christian, then your Christianity is defined by the Bible. So what does the Bible say? And that way, their argument is not with you. It's not a personal argument as much as it is dealing with what the word actually says. I mean, break open Ephesians 1 or Romans 9 someday and just put it in front of somebody and say, deal with that. What does it say? What does it mean? What's the reality of that? Right? You know, I, I'm going to tell this story again. I've told it a couple of times, so some of you may know it. But you know that years ago, Elder Ward got tossed out of a affiliation of Baptist ministers up in Lexington, Kentucky. And he got thrown out because he was Calvinistic. And he said to one of the preachers there, what do you do with Ephesians 1? And the preacher thought he was going to shock him. He said, I tear it out of every Bible I own. And Elder surprised him back and said, good, because that means you knew it was in there. Yeah. And that's the reality. Once you show it to them, they know it's in there. Once you present it, they know it's there. Now they have to deal with that. It's still a compromise to change yourself for an atheist. Still a compromise. Yeah. Right. The truth is the truth, and it deserves a defense, which is what Peter said. Be ready to give that defense. Right? That all takes us to the very end of chapter 4. Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Let me just do the very beginning of chapter 5 because I do think it's important. Here at GCA, we do have church leadership. We believe in church leadership. And so Peter speaks now directly to the leadership of the various congregations that are among the Jews, the diaspora, that are scattered out. The believing Jews that are scattered out of Jerusalem have been gathering and they have eldership. They have leadership within their church. God does not leave a body of his people, his outcalled sheep. He doesn't leave them without leadership. If he gathers them, he's going to give them some gift, some ability to look into his word so that his word is taught, so that his name is proclaimed. And so Peter is now going to direct his comments to the elders. And I think we're going to relate to these next few comments even today because they're still so pertinent to today's church. With each thing that Peter says, don't be like this, we're going to think of people who are like that. It's, it's inevitable. Because the church, unfortunately, in the modern world has become a platform for people to become rich and famous. And that's not the way it was supposed to be. That's not the way the church is designed. That's not the purpose of the church. Jesus did not suffer the wrath of God so that you could be hipper and cooler. God did not do that so that any human being could become a multimillionaire on the backs of other people's gifts. God did not kill his son and raise his son again so that any human being could self-glorify. Do you understand what I'm saying? Peter had to tell them that again, and it's just as true today as it's ever been. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, 
as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Was he indeed a witness of the sufferings of Christ? Yeah. Remember the story that he was there watching as Jesus was going through his trial. Three times he denied he knew him in order to save his own skin, but he was right there in the thick of it. He's very aware of what Jesus went through. He knows the beatings. He knows the spitting. He knows Jesus was paraded through Jerusalem with that chunk of wood on his back. He knows that Jesus was sent to Herod. He knows the beatings and the whippings that he took. So as a witness of Christ, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. In other words, I've seen the whole spectrum of what Christianity is. I am an elder in the church. I'm a fellow elder with you because I have seen the suffering of Christ. Therefore, when I suffer, I am entering into the suffering of Christ. Therefore, I am blessed in being a part of the suffering of Christ because I also have seen the glory that is to come. Because Peter, John, and James were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they saw the glory of Christ. And he heard Jesus say, I'm going to come back in clouds of glory and bring you to where I am, take you to myself. He heard Jesus say, in my Father's house there are many mansions. I go away to prepare a place for you, so that where I am you may also be, so that you may see my glory. He's heard all that. He's seen all that. He's a first-hand witness of all that. And so he says to the elders, I am your fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. So do this, shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, that's the verb form of the Greek word poimen. When Paul talks about gifts that are given to the church in Ephesians 5, he talks about the fact that God gave doma, that he gave gifts. And those gifts were apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. That word pastor there is the word poimen. The word poimen means shepherd. Shepherding, let me point out, is not a fun job. I'm talking about real shepherds, real sheep. Because shepherding is an oftentimes dirty job and you spend your life among Animals that are not real good about keeping themselves clean, who also wander off, who get eaten easily, who don't have any defense. And so that's why shepherding is so important to the life of the sheep. Well, that's the word that Paul decided to use, that Jesus decided to use in understanding what it was going to be like to lead God's people, which is why God's people are called sheep, and which is why Jesus is called the great shepherd of the sheep. And why he creates that analogy over and over. My sheep know my voice. They follow me. And so that is the word that Peter is using here. That Paul has already used. To pastor is to shepherd. So therefore shepherd the flock of God among you. I remember it was pointed out to me many many years ago. That you can't drive sheep if you get behind sheep and and try to push them what happens They, they scatter they go every which way or they just stand their ground stubbornly 
You can't drive sheep, which is why you never see sheep wranglers on horses. I'm wrangling sheep, and I got a lasso, and here we go. You got to lead sheep. And so that reality is part of how Peter sees what it is to pastor people. You can't drive people in Christ. You lead people in Christ. And he says, be an example because they will follow the voice of Christ. They know the voice of Christ and they will follow. But you can't drive them. I heard a preacher one time out in California say, Tom's going to know exactly who I'm talking about, who said, uh, what's the point of having sheep unless you can fleece them? Yes, it was a giving message. Memories. <laughs> 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 and yet Peter's going to say, don't do that. Don't, don't lord it over them. Don't be harsh over them. Recognize that the sheep don't belong to you. They're Christ's sheep. And Christ is going to discipline them. Your job is to care for them. Now, shepherds in the Middle East usually didn't own their sheep. They were hired shepherds because nobody wanted to do that job. And so you would hire shepherds who would tend to and care for the sheep. Sometimes it was the youngest son, like David. But it was usually not the owner, not dad, not, not the master of the house. So therefore, we are told to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, which means watch over them, take care of them, not under compulsion. In other words, not because you have to, not because somebody's making you do it, but do it voluntarily. There's that voluntary idea again. Peter has been writing a lot about voluntarily submit yourselves to the powers that be, to the government, to your husbands, to your wives, to your masters. Voluntarily submit. Now he brings that concept into pastors and says, as an elder, as a pastor, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain. Whoops. <laughs> and not for your own private jet. And not for your own satellite uplink. And not for your own mansion. And not for your own limousine. Any of these resonating with you? Jet. Yeah, okay, good. The Bible is just so very clear. Not for that reason. Now. Does the Bible say that it's appropriate to support those who preach the gospel? Yes. Yeah, because the Bible says those that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But notice that Peter uses the adjective sordid gain, illicit gain, not fleecing people so that you can get rich while they struggle, while they suffer. Not for sordid gain, but to do it with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those that are allotted to your charge. What does that mean? What does it mean to lord it over somebody? It's to act like I'm the important one. It doesn't matter if you're here or not, but I'm the, as long as I'm here, as long as I'm doing my job, 
then, then this church is going to survive because God has gifted me with this exceptional gift and I'm the top dog and everything else. That's what it is to lord it over people. Look, God made me an elder. What did he make you? Servant? Well, then serve. Not as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. What does that mean? That means live your Christian life in a way that people can recognize your Christian commitment and then they follow. You can't drive them. They follow after your example. Nor yet as lording it over those who are allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock and when the chief shepherd appears you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. Let me tell you what I want. I'm liking that whole unfading crown of glory idea. In other words, the more we humble ourselves here, the more we live as examples of Christ here, the greater the reward in heaven, the greater the reward when Christ returns, the greater the reward of the glory of Christ when he comes for his own sheep. Isn't that enough inspiration to do it the right and biblical way? So now he's talked to everybody. He's talked to husbands and wives. He's talked to citizens. He's talked to servants. He's talked to the leaders within the church. And he's talked to everybody in general and said, be good to each other. Be kind to each other. Be hospitable to each other. Forgive each other's sins. He's covered the whole gamut of what makes up the church. Certainly by now we ought to be getting a good idea of what Peter is driving at, which in a nutshell is God has been really, really good to you. Now be really, really good to each other. If God has forgiven you, then forgive each other. God's been really gracious to you. Now be gracious with each other. God has been exceptionally long-suffering with some of you. (laughs) So be exceptionally long-suffering with others. God has been good to you. Be good to each other. Questions? Yes, ma'am. When Jesus used the phrase, don't cast your pearls before swine, he said, because they will trample the pearls and then turn and rend you. And so if you are telling the truth to somebody and they trample on it, then don't let the word of God be maligned. It's not your job to stand there and let somebody use the word of God in a hateful manner. I mean, I've presented the gospel before to people who just hated it. And I do what Jesus said. I brush the dust off me and walk away and figure that they've got a bigger problem than me because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will recompense. They got to deal with him. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Jesus' ministry and crucifixion and resurrection all happened within roughly three and a half years. So it's just natural to think at that kind of speed that everything else that's about to come is going to happen quickly too. Yeah, here we go. I agree. Anything else? We're good? All right, we've got plenty of food in the back. I hope that you plan to stick around and eat with us and just fellowship with each other, enjoy each other's company.
say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.